If you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, We'll be in Romans 15 and 16. We are going to finish Romans today. Don't be too excited about that. No, it has been fun to walk through it with you. It has been challenging and uh, I hope uh, encouraging and helpful for for you. Um, So we're going to finish it out this morning. How does the world uh, define organizational success? Uh, When you look at a company, a business, how do they define if our business, if our corporation uh, is successful? Well, they're going to look, uh, are are they profitable? Is the bottom line in the green uh, or in the black, not the red? Were we able to open another store like we wanted to, expand to that other country? Are they growing? Are they seen as maybe a leader in their industry? Uh, Have they changed maybe the landscape of how people interact with their uh, products and services? Maybe like how Netflix really changed how who knows what a DVD is anymore. Darcy does. Darcy's got a whole collection of them. You know, maybe they would say, hey, are we, are we able to be a voice in the culture speaking to whatever values they hold to? How do they define success? It's in many of those types of ways. But the question that we are going to try to answer this morning is how does the church define success? How do we define success? How do we know if we are healthy? So often, there are really only two markers that churches use to define health. And you know what they are? They are people and money. People and money. If we have a lot of money and a lot of people, then we're doing great. I can't tell you how often this trap has sucked me and many other ministers into its clutches. As a youth pastor, I would rise and fall through encouragement and depression, depending on how many teenagers showed up to my Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, It is easy to look in this room and to be encouraged or depressed by how many seats are filled up. But that's wrong. It's wrong because we might have a a youth event or a church event that we had a thousand people show up. But none of them get saved. None of them get discipled. None of them grow in their faith. None of them are encouraged. None of them start sharing the gospel because of that event or anything really spiritual happens. And so though we had a lot of people, maybe we had fun, there was no actual spiritual success. But because there was a lot of people there, we're tempted to think, oh, win. Great. Because there were a lot of people that we accomplished something when in reality you haven't accomplished anything except for getting a crowd together. You see, money and people are not outputs, they're inputs. Money and people are not the goal of the church. It is not money and people that we're trying to get. They are not outputs. Meaning, think about a vending machine. What do you put into a vending machine? You put money into a vending machine to get out a snack. Well, what are we putting into the proverbial vending machine to get out what? Well, a lot of times churches will say, hey, we're going to put in a great show. We're going to put in this big event. We're going to put on this or that or whatever, and we'll get more people and more money. But that's backward. You see, actually, we are to put money and people in the machine. And what do we get out? Disciple. See, money and people are inputs, not outputs. They are what we put in to get something else out. We put money and people and time and energy, right, in to get out disciples. You see, more money and more people is not the goal of the church. Making fully mature disciples is. 
We do not define success by having a lot of people or a lot of money. Apple has a lot of people, right? Apple is using their products and has a lot of money, and, and for that, it's, it's successful for them, but that can't be for us. Joel Osteen has a lot of money at his church, and there is a whole lot of people in that giant church building, but it is not successful because he's leading people astray away from the gospel and toward prosperity, not the gospel. So what does it mean for us to be healthy? If it's not having a stadium full of people and a lot of money, what does it mean for us to be healthy? What does it mean for us when we have a church full of people who are being discipled? What does it look like when we have a church full of people being discipled? Well, the last two chapters of Roman really give us a picture of it, really begins to flesh that out. Remember we said the first uh, 11 chapters of Roman were theology, and the, and the last five are kind of application. And in these last two, we see the application or a picture of what a healthy church begins to look like. Now, let me be clear, the list that we're going to go through today is not an exhaustive list by any means. There are certainly things that are not going to be on the list today that I think the scriptures would add from other places, right? But this is an important list nonetheless. And so, through, through, this is what we find in this text. And so, seven traits of a healthy church, seven traits of a church that is making disciples, seven traits that we at Fellowship Baptist Church should strive to achieve and have as a part of our culture, or you might even say seven evidences of a healthy church, that if your church looks like these things, it's healthy. Let's begin by looking at verse 7 of chapter 15. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. What does it mean for a church to welcome one another, to be welcoming? Maybe it just means that the welcome team does a really good job of greeting people on the way in. Maybe it just means that uh, during the greeting time, you, you know, you make sure you shake as many hands as you can shake. Maybe it means finding somebody new that you don't know and saying welcome. And while all of those things are good and true and we should be doing them, Paul has something I think much deeper in mind here. For much of this chapter, Paul explains that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. That's a, a big section of this chapter. He said that God has come for those that were far from him, right? See, the, the Jews, they were those that were near to God. You know, they had the scriptures, they had the temple, they had the songs and the rituals, they had all this sort of religious and spiritual stuff that pointed them to God, but the Gentiles didn't have any of that. The Gentiles were far from God, and they were looked down upon. They were shunned because they were all sorts of evil and corrupt and bad and vile and awful. And the word Gentile was a slur. It was like a cuss word. It was like, oh, you're like a Gentile. It's a bad thing. And so Paul is making it clear that Jesus came not just for those good religious people, but for these bad Gentiles, right? These people that are different than us. These people that are looked at bad or awful or negatively. And God, by sending Jesus for them, has welcomed those who were far off, those who were weird, those who were different. He has brought them near. Those who are far off, he has brought them into his family. He's welcomed them. And now it is our turn to portray that same character of God, to live out the character of God that we see as he welcomes us. Because who are Gentiles? As us, right? He's welcomed us into his family. And in the same way that he's welcomed us into his family, we need to welcome other people. And it is to God's glory that we welcome them in. You see, it is for the glory of God 
because the glory of God is, is made manifest in this reality that God's heart is for the nations. Right? That God's heart wasn't just to, to be stuck in this one little, play, one little country named Israel forever, but his heart was for every tribe, tongue, and nation to come to know him, right? And, and as we are a people who, who bring people in, who welcome people in, who bring them into as a part of our family, and we don't say, no, this isn't a church for your kind. But we say that this is a church for people no matter your skin color, no matter uh, what language you speak, no matter your economic status, no matter if you got a lot of money or you got no money. This is a home for you, that, we, that you belong here with us. Come join the family of God and join our little family here. And the glory of God is revealed and may manifest when we do that, when we welcome people of all stripes into our family. You see, to welcome one another is more than saying, hey, welcome, we're so glad that you're here. It's more than shaking a hand or even hugging a neck. To welcome one another is to make other people who come to our church feel so included, so welcomed, so a part of things, so connected, so wanted and valued and loved that they feel deep in their guts that they belong here. They belong here. That no one would ever say of our church, Oh, it's clicky. But that everyone belongs in as a part of our family. See, we look at people and we say, with the deepest sincerity, that we are so glad that you're here. And that when you were gone last week, my soul ached from missing you. But it's even more than saying those words. It is communicating so effectively, both through our, our words, through our actions, through our body language, through everything. That I make you feel and hear and feel welcomed, you belong here. Maybe when you were growing up, you remember what it felt like when you went to spend a night with a friend for the first time. You went over to your friend's house and, you know, you don't know where anything is, right? And, and it's uncomfortable. You come in and, and you don't know, like, is this one of those families where you take your shoes off at the door? Right? Or is this one of those you, you can wear your shoes and you don't know. And so you stand there at the door kind of lurking, kind of waiting to see and, and not really sure. And, and then you don't know whether you should go in there and stand up or just plop down on the couch. And, you know, you're offered a drink and you can't remember if you're thirsty or not in that moment. And so you say no. And then you realize you were thirsty, but now you're too scared to ask for the drink that was just offered to you. And, and you wish you'd said yes. Um, and, and, and then, but you're not sure if they've got orange Kool-Aid because you don't want to drink orange Kool-Aid. And if they offer you orange Kool-Aid, you're going to be like, no, I'm good. Even though you just poured me that glass, I'm no way I'm drinking that. If you got purple, I'm into that, but not orange. And you're stressed out. And then they make dinner for you. And, and it, it might be the same kind of food your mama makes, but it, it don't taste like the food your mama makes. And so you sit down and you're like, and, you, and, and your appetite, you were starving before, but now your appetite is gone. Because now, not only is it the food not like your mama makes, but it's also the pressure of feeling like, do I have to clean my plate? Are they going to judge me if I don't clean my plate? What if I have one little bite left? Are they going to be like, oh, starving kids in Africa, you got to eat that. And you're stressed about eating, so now your appetite's gone. You can't eat any of it, and it makes it even worse. And then you go to sleep, and the pillow's not like your pillow, and, uh, and the sheets are rough, and uh, you're cold, and you're like, you want to turn the thermostat up, and you're like, I don't even know what the thermostat is. Am I allowed to touch it? Or is this one of those families that's like, no one touches the thermostat but dad? <laughs> and so it's stressful, and you're not relaxed, and you don't feel like at home. But sometimes, sometimes you go into a place, and those, that parent there has a, had a particular gift of hospitality. 
And they had a particular way of quickly taking the pressure off, quickly making all of those stressors and, and issues fade away. And through their hospitality, it made you feel at ease and comfortable. And slowly, bit by bit, you began to feel like you belong there. And eventually, you might even feel like it was a home away from home. And that's what we're called to do. When people walk through these doors, we welcome them for the, to the glory of God. That no matter if you have something in common with me or not, you know, like uh, it, no matter if we're in the same life stage or not, uh, no matter if we have the same political leanings or not, no matter where they come from or what they look like or sound like, if they are coming looking for a church to belong to, we welcome you with open arms, right? We bring them close. We take off the pressure. We, through our words and our body language and our actions and everything else, communicate, thank God that you're here. Welcome. The first mark of a healthy church is a church that truly and genuinely welcomes all types of people into our family. So if I hug you too tightly, if I talk to you too closely, if I linger too long and am too friendly, it's because I want you to know that you are welcome here. And while I just apply this to new people, let me be clear about something. This is also how we are to treat people who've been here for 50 years. And you couldn't have been here longer for 50 years because this is our 50th birthday. Even those who've been here for 50 years need to continually know and be reminded that, yes, we want you here. Yes, you are welcomed here. Yes, you belong here. Welcoming is not something we do one time on your first visit. It is something we do to every single person, every single day, all the time. Because here's the deal. It is easy to forget and doubt and wonder, do they still want me here? Am I just being, being used, being neglected? Do people even know I'm here? And what an encouragement and blessing it is to have someone remind you through the way they treat you, through the hugs and through the words and through their actions that, yes, Yes, I'm glad you're here. Yes, I notice you. Does it warm your heart when that happens to you and that you know you belong? And so, church, let's become even better at welcoming one another always. Amen? All right, y'all can talk, all right? All right. All right, look at verse 2, chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for Christ and not please himself. Let me read it again. Let each of us, all right, so nobody's excluded, all of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, right, so you're working for your neighbor's good, to build him up for Christ did not please himself. The greatest commandment tells us to love God with all of our heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think one of the clearest marks of Christian maturity is found in the way we treat one another. One of the clearest marks of whether or not you are maturing in Christ is the way in which you treat other people, the way you love them as yourself. So are we marked by selfishness and, and ego and arrogance? Do we feel like we have to always be right, that, that, you know, that, that we are always right? Do we, have, do we feel like we want to be noticed, thought highly of? Are we self-absorbed or are we humble? Are we not thinking of ourselves? Are we sacrificing? Are we giving up our own desires, giving up things that we want or would prefer for the sake of other people? We are to please others for their good, right? It's my job to, to please you, make sure you're happy. Or summed up, we are to build one another up. When people have been around you, here's a question I want you to ask yourself. When people have spent time with you, they've been around you, do they walk away from your presence feeling encouraged? 
Do they walk away from your presence feeling cared for and loved and, listen to this word, valued? Do they walk away from you feeling like, man, they really value me. They really noticed me. They cared for me. They, were pre- they listened to me. They always appreciated. Or do people walk out of your presence feeling used, unheard, uncared for, run over, mocked, belittled, or unwanted? Man, I can't tell you, there is no better feeling in the world than being around someone who wants to build you up. Like it is, it changes the course of a day and a week when someone you are around builds you up. Like if you are around someone who deeply cares for you and builds you up, and, and, and you, can, you can even then begin to hear critiques from them, right? You can hear pushback from them because you know they care for you. And there is nothing better in the world than genuine encouragement when someone is caring for you and building you up. And at the same time, there is nothing worse than being torn down. There is nothing worse than for, for someone to be snappy towards you or to make a quick, uh, uncaring remark, right? It, it tears you down in an instant, right? And sometimes people do that, and they, they don't even realize they did it. They thought they were being funny. They thought they were making a joke, right? They thought it was all in good fun, but they, they don't realize that they stabbed you through the heart, and you are crushed on the inside while they just move on with their life. And for a week, you are just obsessed with this one little tic-tac-sized comment that they made, and it is, or, or their body language towards you or whatever, and it is just rocking you. And they don't, have, they don't even know. They don't know at all. And you are just distraught over this thing that they said to you. I can think back on ways where I have made jokes or quick remarks and to be pithy or sly and funny. And in the moment, I, sometimes, you know, I, I'll say those things and I don't realize I hurt anybody. But other times, the moment they leave my mouth, I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, come back. <laughs> and it's like, you know, the immediately comes out, it's like, mm, I thought that was funny. And now I'm realizing I wasn't funny. We can unintentionally hurt people and not realize it and just break them. You've heard the old nursery rhyme that says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, whoever wrote that is either in denial or an idiot. Because it turns out the opposite is in fact true. Sticks and stones can only break my bones, but words can destroy my very soul. Trait two of a healthy church. It's members build each other up. It's members build each other up. We need to take great care, great thought, and how we treat one another. That we are working for the other person's good. That we should want people to leave our presence feeling encouraged and valued and wanted and cared for and built up. A core value of our church is that everyone is valuable. Every single person who's a member of our church, we believe, is valuable. That God has instinctively put, intrinsically put value into them. And we need to continue growing and living out that core value. In our youth group, hey guys, anytime one of them makes a mean joke or a rude comment, uh, I think this started with Ryan, but now I think the cultures began to catch on and now other people than just Ryan do this. But someone makes a quick joke or a rude comment and, and someone asks them, what do they ask them? What do they ask if someone makes a rude comment? Was it building up or tearing down? Was that building up or tearing down? And I think that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Hopefully before we speak. Is what am I about to say going to build them up or tear them down? As many of you know, we have a special needs foster son in our home that we're trying to adopt. And 
Um, he's, you know, not neurotypically developing, and so uh, he's got, you know, some mental delays. And we, we recently, my wife recently listened to this training that said, for every negative comment that the child associates an action with, right, like don't pull hair and you respond by slapping their hand or yelling at them or whatever, it's a negative, negative comment, negative experience. For every negative experience, it takes 13 positive encounters to, out, to, to undo that one negative experience. And when she was telling me this, my first thought wasn't, wow, that's crazy. My first thought was, man, me too. Man, that's not weird. That's true. That's true. I have been encouraged by so many of you, and I'll, I'll get, you know, 10 encouraging comments by, by many of you, and then I'll get one negative one. And, it, and it's not just pushback, right? It's a negative, mean-spirited, you know, body, whatever. I'll get one negative experience, and I will forget what the other 10 of you said, and I will dwell and focus on that one thing, and it will just rock me for a week, Right? And I know you've experienced the same thing. And so how much more do we need encouragement and being built up by one another to outdo the negativity that we so often experience, even just in the world? People need to be built up, right? Because the world is trying to tear us down, and it takes one little thing to hurt us, and it takes a whole community to build us back up. All right, verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when one person who can uh, really sing well uh, sings, it can be beautiful, it can be powerful, you can be blown away by their vocal range, you can be blown away by the, the power that they, that they, you know, the, the gusto that comes out. But one person singing, no matter how good, really is nothing compared to when you add other, other voices to that same song and create a harmony. If you've ever heard a five-part harmony, you know how beautiful it sounds. Like, it's like the song begins to take on a weight. It's like it goes from 2D to 3D. The sound reverberates through you, and you can't even put words to or explain why it is that this song now is three-dimensional. Now, a harmony requires that you have multiple people singing different notes. If you have multiple people singing the same note, that's not a harmony. That's just singing the melody. It's just singing the same thing. But harmony, harmony is different people singing different notes at the same time, and those specific notes are combined together to make a chord or a harmony, and it is beautiful. And it is something that cannot be achieved by an individual. It takes a group. For us to live in harmony with one another, it requires that we are different. It actually requires us to be different, but yet walking in peace with one another, in harmony, in togetherness with one another. It means that we need to be a church that can have people sitting in the same pews, the same chairs, and, and next to each other, you have someone who's incredibly rich and someone who's incredibly poor. You have someone who's incredibly sporty, and next to them, someone who is incredibly nerdy. You have someone sitting, uh, a Republican sitting next to a Democrat. We have all different kinds of people in this room together. That we don't come into this room and segregate off. Right? We don't have all the nerds on one side and the cool kids on the other. This isn't high school. Right? We don't put guys on one side and girls on the other. We don't segregate off into our own little Bible study classes. 
We don't just hang out with those like us. Rather, we serve and we labor and we pray and we grow and we learn and we give and we care for one another regardless of those differences. And we say that the fact that we are kneeling at the feet of the throne of Jesus together, that we are a family and citizens of this kingdom that cannot be shaken, unites us in a way that nothing else can. And so it doesn't matter what the world would say is trying to divide us. The world would say makes us different, makes us separate. We would say that now we're a family and this matters more than anything else, and so we're going to walk and serve Jesus together despite these differences because what we have in common is so much more significant than what divides us. And we do this to the glory of God. Trait three, a healthy church lives in harmony together despite its differences. The world is tearing tearing itself apart right now over every single little issue. Uh, (laughs) It's amazing to watch. All the little things that we fight over. All the little things that separate us and divide us. It reminded me when I was thinking about this growing up, me and my three sisters would fight a lot. And sometimes when we were in the middle of fighting, my mom would get frustrated and she would say, y'all stop fighting. Y'all would fight over anything. Y'all would fight over who got to clean up the, the, the dog poop if I asked you. I was like, no, Maybe. The world wants to fight over everything and divide over everything. We have to be a people who can disagree on little things that don't matter in the light of eternity. And we are all singing our own notes. But when we come together around the throne of Jesus, we make a beautiful harmony. And when the world looks at it, they don't make sense of it. They're like, these people shouldn't agree. These people shouldn't be together. These people should be watching Fox News and CNN, and they should be far apart from one another. But yet the gospel... The throne of Jesus, the new family he's making, brings us together. Verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now, this is a quick and easy point. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are growing into maturity, and if you are a part of a church that is calling you deeper into those things, you are going to grow in your goodness. Now, you won't grow overnight. You might not see the difference of your growth in a week or a month, but year after year, you should see yourself growing in character and in virtue. Jesus has declared you righteous through his blood, right? By faith alone, through grace alone, Jesus has made you righteous. But you're not. You're still a sinner. And so slowly by slowly, Jesus is making you into the thing he said you are. He's making you what he declared you to be. He's making you actually righteous. Healthy churches call you to change, call you to grow, call you to become more like Jesus, call you to holiness. And the markers are laid out for us in the scriptures, right? For a great example, the fruit of the Spirit. Do you want to know if you're growing in faith, growing in Christ-likeness? Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and... Because the fruit of the Spirit's not a banana. Y'all know that song? Okay. The fruit of the Spirit is not a banana, but it love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you growing in those things? Gentleness, for example. Are you growing in gentleness? The world says gentleness is weakness. But what we know is that it actually takes great strength to be gentle. It takes great restraint and strength to be gentle. Are you growing in gentleness? Are you growing in self-control? 
straight four, healthy churches push you to grow in Christ-likeness. Healthy churches push you to grow in Christ-likeness. Are you growing in these things? Growing in your goodness, in your virtue, in your character. Healthy churches cause you to grow. Verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you, that you yourselves are full of goodness and then filled with all knowledge. The fifth trait of a healthy church is that people are growing in knowledge. It's people are growing in the knowledge of God. Healthy churches cause people to grow in the knowledge of God. The greatest commandment, what does it tell us? To love God with all of our heart, soul, I don't know, heart, mind, soul, strength. Mind. You are to love God with your mind. We don't check our brains at the door. We don't turn our brains off at the door and just come in here with our hearts. We come in here with our minds. We love God with our brains. And if we do love God, it is the natural impulse to want to know more about him. If we love God, we're going to want to know more about him. We're going to want to understand him deeper. We're going to want to know his character. We're going to know how he operates. We're going to want to understand the history of how he's interacted with the world. I was raised going to church on and off, and and the reason that we were off church for long seasons was because I made it very difficult for my parents to want to take me because I hated going to church because church was boring. I didn't want to sing. I didn't want to listen to that guy up there talk. I didn't care about the Sunday school lessons. I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to be there. It was boring. And so I'd pretend to be asleep in the morning so my parents might hopefully decide to sleep in. But then I turned 15, and my buddy told me we could go to this camp, and there would be a lot of hot girls. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And there would be all this other fun stuff to do. And so we go to this camp. I could care less about the preaching, care less about the music, care less about learning. I wanted to do all these other things. I wanted to play paintball and meet girls and play football, whatever. Until one night, God took my heart, ripped it out, gave me a new one, and I surrendered my life to the kingship of Jesus. And the craziest thing happened that overnight, church went from being boring to I couldn't wait for a Sunday to happen again. And went from me from it being boring, I didn't want to go to I can't wait for Sunday to come again because I want to go to church. I wanted to learn, I wanted to grow, I wanted all the answers. And 20 years later, that hasn't changed. One way, not the only way, but one of the way we see love for Jesus is in a desire to learn more about him, to grow in your knowledge of him. Some of you may have gotten stuck in a culture or a habit of not learning and growing and knowing the things of Jesus. You don't have a desire to learn or begin learning because you've been stuck in this rut. And here is what I would say to you. Just start. Just start somewhere. Give yourself little doses of learning about Jesus. And I think you will find it infectious. And you will want more and more. Because when you begin to learn more about your Savior, you're like, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. I want to know more about that. And you'll just find yourself digging into a bottomless pit of knowledge of the Lord. There are a few ways here at Fellowship that we try to create opportunities for you to learn more about Jesus. I want to mention a few. That if you are not... Doing these things, learn more about Jesus. Here's ways for you to plug in. One, be here on Sunday morning. The number one thing we do is gather regularly on the Lord's Day. God's people singing God's praise and sitting under God's word. This is, this is not an optional meeting. This is vital to your growth. It's the bare minimum. Two, we have small groups on Sunday mornings. Find a small group. Go to it. Learn, meet people, engage, and learn and study the word with them. Three, join a D group. D groups meet throughout the week and study, study the scriptures together. Wednesday night Bible study, come and eat, come and study the word. We'll put a whole wall out here full of books that we have vetted and approved and say these are good for you. 
Go read them. Brady mentioned this one when he was here a couple weeks ago. You want to understand the big picture of the Bible? Go grab this book and read it. You want to understand why we should believe in God and think through hard issues? Go grab this book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's, a, it's amazing. You want to just know, understand theology on a deeper level? Go grab this little bitty book. And you can go through doctrines and understand why we believe what we believe. Go grab a book and read it. If you tell me you're 60 years old and you haven't read a book since high school, you need to start reading. Go grab a book. Get in the Sunday school class. Plug in. Find a way to grow. Verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 17 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. But how are you supposed to avoid those people who are causing divisions and creating obstacles that are contrary to the truth if you are not confident for yourself what the truth is? If you don't know for yourself what you believe, what is right and what is truth, if you don't know for yourself because you've not done the reading, you've not done the wrestling, you've not done the thinking through, then when some news anchor or some radio preacher or some TV preacher or some friend or some Facebook post makes a truth claim, a claim that you might want to be true, a claim that you might be predisposed to believe, a claim that seems right to you, how will you know if it's right or wrong? How will you know if it's true or false? How will you not know that this is just some slick person talking, telling you what you want to hear? You see, the problem is many of us in this room have developed our theology, our understanding of God. We've developed that in ways that we're not even conscious of or realize. We've developed our thinking about who God is based on movies and TV shows and fiction books we've read. We've developed who we think God is on news and culture and bad songs that we grow up singing. We've been taught uh, so many bad things about what to believe about God, and we don't even realize it. And you don't know how to refute those things or to change those things that you wrongly believe because you're not doing the work to grow in the knowledge of God. Verse 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And those are, that's intense words. <laughs> by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The question is, are you naive? Or do you know the truth? Because you put in the work to know the word of God. How do you know the difference between truth and a smooth talker? Because I know plenty of people who could smooth talk you into a lie so quick and you would be none the wiser. How do you know the things I'm seeing up here are true? The only way to know a smooth talker who is deceiving you from the truth is to know the truth beforehand. You know, we are all theologians in this room. The moment you think about God, you are a theologian. Someone who form, a theologian is someone who forms an opinion on who God is and what he does. And you are a theologian. If you've thought about God, the only question is, are you a good theologian or a lazy one? Healthy churches push their people to grow in the knowledge of God. Verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. What kind of culture must a church have in order for its members to be the type of people who receive instruction from one another? You see, we're going to be a church that doesn't just have gospel doctrine in our head, but has a gospel doctrine in our hearts and in our culture. 
Meaning the gospel is not just something, some set of beliefs we have on some piece of paper somewhere, but rather it is something that is so important to us, it trickles down from our brain into our hearts and changes the way we think and interact. You see, if someone comes up to me, and they have an opinion on how something ought to be done or how something ought to be changed or how they didn't like this or didn't like that or didn't like what I said or didn't like what I did. And they come to me hot and angry and passionate and come pointing their finger and tearing me down and explaining to me all the ways I was wrong. They might be right in their assertions. They might be right in their opinion. But I'm not going to hear it because my wall's going up. Conda forever. But if you come to me and you say, Brent, Brent, you know I love you so much, and I think you're doing a great job, and I fully support you, and I was hoping that I might bring something to your attention to consider, and then say the exact same thing, I'm probably going to be like, whoa, man, I never thought about that. I didn't see that. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. Yeah, we'll fix that right away. When we will then be able to instruct one another. When we handle things like that, we are able to instruct one another, challenge one another. When we all realize that we're all in the same boat, that we're all sinners saved by grace, and we are all trying the best we can to serve God faithfully, that we're all sinners and we're all going to mess up and we're all going to fail one another at times, then we can come to each other in humility because I failed and you failed. I've made bad decisions, you've made bad decisions. And we can come to one another. Ready to receive and give correction and able to receive it because I know you love me. I know you're working for my good. I know you're trying to build me up. I know you're just trying to care for me. And then you know what happens? Man, I'm so ready to admit, man, yeah, that was sinful of me. I shouldn't have said that. Man, I I was too quick-tongued. I I was, will you forgive me? I was sinful. I was bad. And I I can own that because I know that you know you're a sinner too. And you're not coming down on me in condemnation like you're some holier-than-thou person. You're coming to me as a brother or a sister, and you're saying, hey, Brent, I've been there, and I just want to point something out to you that maybe you didn't notice. You see the difference? When that gospel culture gets down in us, we're able to be a people who instruct one another. When we don't, we become like the devil who was called the accuser. And when we become accusing other people, the wall goes up. But when we can instruct each other in love, we have a gospel culture. See, trait six, healthy churches build a gospel culture where its members can instruct and learn from one another without fighting. And when we have that sort of culture, you know what happens? Our younger people care what our older people say. Our younger people want to hear the wisdom of saints who have followed Jesus for a long, long time. And those older saints might begin to see, oh, there's some of our younger people who have a wisdom beyond their years, and they have value that I want to hear from. What you will begin to find is that there are people you did not expect to learn from. There are people you did not expect to uh, appreciate their thoughts and opinions and wisdom, and all of a sudden, you do, and you learn and instruct one another. Chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a great verse. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love the imagery because it echoes Genesis chapter 3.15 when God promised he would crush the head of the serpent by sending a son to die on a cross. But in this verse, God is inviting us to join in the work that God is ultimately doing by crushing Satan forever. He's saying you get to be a part of snake crushing too. I'm going to crush the snake and you get to crush him too. And so every time 
a sinner repents and comes to saving faith in Jesus, Satan loses a little bit more of his reign. He loses a little bit more ground. And every time that new convert is discipled and grows in the knowledge of God and lives out the gospel by building one another up and living in harmony and, and, and shares the gospel, the kingdom of Christ advances a little further and the kingdom of Satan shrinks a little bit back more and a little bit more. Remember what Jesus promised? Jesus promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And while Satan has been stripped of his weapons on the cross, he is still little by little losing all the ground that he owns. All the ground that he retains is little by little being taken from him. Jesus is taking it back through the church, through the, through the church building his kingdom. And Satan has no chance to stand against the kingdom of a crucified and risen Christ. See, Trait 7, healthy churches advance the mission of Jesus. We advance the mission of Jesus. And so when we, Fellowship Baptist Church, live out what God has called us to do, when, when we live in harmony with one another, when we build one another up, when we grow in the knowledge of God, and when we take the gospel to those who do not know it, we crush Satan's head under our feet. <laughs> Good news. We get to be snake crushers too. And so we got to work. We've got a mission that we huddle and rally around together and conquer together. And when we do, we crush the head of the devil. You see, the church is a family. It is a family on mission. A family who cares for one another and works toward this end of this mission together. And I love the way chapter 16 <clears throat> sends us off. Because it gives a beautiful picture of the church. These words are not going to be on the screen. If you want to follow along, look at verse 16, or chapter 16, verse 1. Kind of long, but I want you to hear it. Don't tune out on me. When you read your Bible and you come to this section of Scripture, you're always tempted to just, oh, it's just a list. Just a list of names. I don't need to read that. It's just a list. But listen. Verse 1, chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. At, some of these names I'm going to butcher, so just, just deal with it. Uh, Centria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church uh, in their house. Greet my beloved Ephanitis, who was the first convert to church in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amphilitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcius. Greet those work those workers in the Lord. Tryphania, two T words. Greet the beloved Perseus who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Greet. Greet Philogian, Hermes, Petrus, Hermas, the brothers who are with me. Greet Philogius, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus. And all the saints who are with me, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
When you read through Romans and you get to this part and you're tempted to skip over it, there's nothing from here. It's just a list of names. It's just a list of Paul's friends. I can't learn anything from that. But, oh, brothers and sisters, don't, don't just call this a list. It's not a list. It's a church and it's a family. And it's not a list. It's us. Allow me to translate this for you in the year 2022. A letter to our church today might look something like this. I commend to you our sister Elaine Hamblin who has served the Lord faithfully, laboring and working wherever the church needs her. Greet Danny and Bobby who faithfully greet the saints at the front door every week without fail. Greet Dan and Bill who I'm sure are still fixing broken things and are always there when you need to call them. Greet also Titus and Eden and Karai and Knox and Haley and Anna and Jack and, and Violet and CJ and Rachel and Sophie whom have just been baptized. Also greet all those who are new, the, the Peters and the Becks and the Haynes and, and Bethany and the Wrights and the Lakes and Shane Williams, you know, Scott's cousin. And, and let the, the LOLs or the little old ladies as some people, not me call them, but other people call them, uh, let them know that I'm praying for them and miss them. Greet also for me the Gannons who, and, and, and have a cup of coffee on my behalf uh, as he labors so uh, faithfully. Greet the staff who labor over the gospel and greet those in their charge, those who serve in the kids ministry and the youth ministry. Their efforts are more valuable than they know. I pray they continue serving faithfully to win the next generation for Christ. Oh, and greet the deacons who serve and labor for the church. Greet my, my buddies up there in the tech booth who likewise go on notice but whose work is important. Greet those who prepare food and serve in the kitchen and greet my brothers and fellow elders who serve the flock and and greet my good friend Ron Gervin who I'm sure is still teaching through Revelation. (laughs) Time and parchment prevent me from mentioning you all by name but know that you are all in my heart, my church, my friends, my family. I pray for you without ceasing and greet you with the affection of Christ. You see it is not a list. It is not a bunch of names. It's us. It's the church. It is those who have been laboring together, building one another up, growing in the Lord, who have been preaching and spreading the gospel together. It is a family who are in the trenches, waging war against the devil, one soul at a time. Don't call it a list. Call it the church. A healthy church. A church I hope Fellowship Baptist Church is on the road to become more and more of. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather and we look at what does it mean for us to be the church? What does it mean for us to be healthy? The world, when we look at business, the world tells us that it's all about money and growth and more people and more employees and another branch open. And, and sometimes churches, we can get that bug. Man, if we could just launch another campus, just, uh, just have more people, more chairs, more money, then man, that's success. God, help us to rip that false thinking out of our minds. God, help us to be a church that cares about numbers any, only in as much as those numbers reflect disciples made. Disciples who have come through genuine conversion and who are growing in their faith and following the Lord faithfully. Help us not be concerned when there's an extra empty chair. Help us to be only concerned with filling it with a new disciple. Help us not to praise ourselves just because we've got more people than the church down the street. Help us to be faithful in loving one another and serving and building up one another and living in harmony with one another. Because every single time there is a sharp word or or gossip behind someone's back or hurt feelings or a body language where we're, we're just rough with one another, Satan gets a foothold. 
and wants to, wants to crush the work we are doing. God, but would you help us? Would you invite us into that work and bring us into the work of crushing his head to the work you're doing through us? God, would you make us a faithful church, a faithful church who grows and, and labors together in unison and in harmony and in love for one another and love for serving and caring and reaching the world for Christ. God, make us into that. If you're here this morning and you cannot be a part of this beautiful thing that I've described because you do not belong to Jesus, while we sing this song, I'm going to stand over here to the side. Just come up and talk to me. I'd love to share with you, talk to you about what it means to follow him. How he'll, he'll accept you right now, bring you into his family. And if you're here this morning and that's not you, but you would say, Brent, I want that vision for our church. While we sing, would you just pray? And pray and echo that, that idea that, God, would you make us into a healthy church that loves its people, serves its people, and grows in the Lord and is on mission. Pray that. Keep praying it every day. Respond. If you need to pray about anything, I'll be up here. I'd love to pray with you. Would you stand in and let's sing together.